This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. Today's conversation was one that I was looking forward to since before I even reached out to the guest to be on the show. A new author, Graham Zimmerman, is on the show today. Graham has worn many hats throughout his career as a professional alpinist. He is a Piole d'Or recipient, a community leader, a vocal climate activist, an award-winning creative, and so much more. We spoke about adventure, what the mountains and expeditions in them teach you, how these interactions and adventures make you a better person. We both shared stories of overcoming obstacles and seeking harmony in life. And of course, we spoke about his new book titled A Fine Line. He is eloquent with his words, and it is a true pleasure to get to talk to someone who I look up to and admire as an athlete and as a human. Before we get into this thought-provoking conversation, I'd like to shout out our wonderful sponsors who keep this show going. The holidays are upon us, and I keep thinking about small but meaningful gifts that everyone needs and everyone would be stoked on. At least I would be. Darn tough socks are high on that list. Cozy feet with functional socks goes a long way in the mountains and should never be overlooked. Darn toughs have more material where needed so they don't wear out as quick. They are made with merino wool, have ventilated zones in all the right places, and just feel so much better than your average sock. I swear by them and would most definitely be fired up to get these as a gift. I'd also like to thank Rumple for supporting the show. And yes, I totally recommend a Rumple as a great gift as well. If you don't know what a Rumple is, well, it's a puffy blanket. They have collabs with so many incredible artists and are the coziest blankets for the wintertime. I have one in my car and one on my couch and generally make sure that I snuggle up as often as possible to read Graham's new book, A Fine Line. All right. I am honored to be sitting here with Graham Zimmerman. Welcome to Care Less Do More, my podcast. Thank you for being here. I am. I'm so honored to be here. This is so. This is so cool. I've actually listened to your show quite a bit, and uh, and uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited to chat with you about the book and and uh, and our shared stories in the mountains and with Protector Winters and all that stuff. I feel like this is just really a really great, uh, really great place for us to be chatting about all this stuff. Yes, yes, I'm excited. I love podcasts and I'm honored and stoked that you listen to mine actually. That's really cool. Um, but usually I like I used to write these intro bios for people and I feel like I have so much information on you now after like diving into your book quite a bit. Your book is called A Fine Line. Came out October 1st and you're is this your first book you've written? This is definitely my first book and I'll tell you what it was it was a lot of work. Writing a book takes a lot of time and energy. Yeah, what inspired it? Um, that's a really good question. I, um, so I actually pitched another book to the publisher and I I pitched them a book on climate advocacy and I really wanted to tell other people's stories about how they had gotten into this world and how they, they had kind of found their, their niche within, within the climate advocacy space or, or advocacy in general. And the publisher came back and said, Hey, listen, we'd actually love to work with you on a memoir, which I was, I, I'll share, I was like a little bit taken aback by at first because I kind of felt like that was them calling me an old guy I was, because I kind of thought it was a memoir or something you like right when you're like done with your career looking back and, and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We think that actually like a mid-career me- memoir is a really interesting thing because you're in the middle of it. It's all happening. You're not kind of looking at it through the like foggy lens of time. It's, it's all here. And, uh, and that that ended up being a really good suggestion. Um, I really enjoyed getting all these stories down. And I think, interestingly, Michelle, it was like looking back at my early years of climbing, 
when I first got into climbing or when I went on my first big expeditions, I did kind of feel that like that foggy lens of time looking back. And I really, I was, I was really actually happy that I got a bunch of these stories down now when they're at least fresh enough that I could kind of capture how I was feeling and who I was at that time. Because I think 20 years from now, I, I, I suspect a lot of that would kind of be gone. Um, so it was like really cool to be able to kind of capture and represent young climber Graham. Um, because I don't know, it's kind of interesting to like visit who that person was. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I'm thinking back on 20 years ago when I started my career and I'm like, oh, there's, yeah, that's a foggy lens for sure. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, there was like so much interesting stuff to dig into. Like, uh, well, here, I'll just get into it. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy this that I, uh, I, so like, like why I first got into climbing was this like major question I like set off to answer. And, uh, and it was, and as I kind of explored that question, it wasn't this answer of, oh, I, I went to the mountains and I went alpine climbing for my first time and I, I loved it. And I knew that it was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Like there was none of that. Instead, I had these memories and these journal entries of, oh, I was cold and I was hungry and I was scared and I got really sunburned. And I, you know, and there was no like fun or this is amazing or this is what I want to do. And and so I had to kind of dig in on like, oh my gosh, why did I dedicate my life to this thing that was pretty uncomfortable? And uh, and like answering questions like that was was really, really interesting and something I feel like was for me personally kind of one of like the more compelling parts of actually working on on the memoir. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of dissecting your own story. Yeah, totally. Which I think is a lot like therapy also, which is, you know, helpful. Yes, for sure. And can you talk about that? Because I kind of love that like entry into climbing. You were in high school, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. So I was I was in uh, high school. I think I first let's see, I first climbed Mount Adams, one of the volcanoes in the Cascades when I was 14 years old. And I actually dragged a I drag I dragged skis or a snowboard up there to go snowboard off the top of it. Yeah, it was, it was a snowboard actually. Yeah. Um. And um. And I had I had been spending a lot of time in the local ski area. Somebody had coerced me that had told me that you know I should go up and you know go slide off the volcanoes. And I thought that was this really cool idea. And and yeah, it was like it was really hard. It was like two days of carrying way too much stuff. And, um, and I remember being, yeah, being scared and tired and, and not really feeling like I belonged there and being really, really deeply challenged. And I think ultimately that sense of challenge alongside the agency that climbing provided me in terms of my decision makings were the things that like really drew me in. Like, I, I mean, I grew up as a pretty comfortable middle-class kid in North Seattle. Like there wasn't a lot of challenge or strife up there. And, uh, and I was like fine at school and I was okay at sports. And, uh, but the mountains were this place that offered me, offered me this level of challenge that I had never experienced. And it was also in this really stunning environment. And then the decisions I was making out there were were super consequential like i i was making these decisions that like my life was in the balance and i really saw these edges that i could go kind of explore which would really push me to physical and kind of mental limits that i i didn't really know 
I didn't really know where I stood within those limits. And I think that that really was what attracted me was this kind of sort of, um, this, yeah, this challenge that, that, uh, that ultimately really taught me a lot about who I am and taught me a lot about what I am capable of doing as a person and as a community member and, and as a climber. And, uh, and I mean, that's just like a lot of the story of this book is kind of following that path and, and learning about really pouring myself into climbing, but then subsequently learning how the stories from the mountains are this really incredible tool to drive change in the world around us. And, and how that kind of like created this need to go to the mountains, but also this need to go to these other things. And within that, a need for partnership as well, like romantic partnership with, with Shannon, my now wife and how they kind of try to fit all those things together. Um, and it's a lot of the memoir is, is the exploration of trying to balance all those things while going and trying really hard routes in the big, big mountains of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think back on the first time that I hiked a mountain, I was like 17 years old and I did not like it. I was like, this is really hard. <laughs> like the process of actually, I took a nap on the hike. I was with like two friends who are now my senseis in the mountains and they're incredible guides. So they were very knowledgeable. I understood the consequences, but I was just beaten up. I took a nap. I thought I was almost to the top. I wasn't. But finally, when I got to the top, a huge condor flew over. It was in South America. And I was like, oh, I think I get it. Like I'm standing amongst these huge granite spires. There's beautiful blue skies, perfect powder. I was exhausted. We were filming. I was laughing at myself. I'm like, I am not cut out for this. But like you said, that challenge, like while I didn't love it at the time, I kept doing it. And, and now I'm dissecting my own stuff. But I'm like, I wonder why. Like what makes you want to keep pushing your limits and figure out where you can go? Yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting. We live in this world that you can be really like at least I had the opportunity and I, I suspect you were in a similar boat where like the option of just kind of being comfortable all the time was was very available. It was like you have enough food, you have a place to sleep, you know, those kind of like basic needs are met and and you and you know, if the weather's crappy outside, then you just go inside and that's no big deal. And um and I just, I, yeah, I think it's like the the person who I, I found when I went to the mountains, this person who was like inside of me that I, I didn't really know was there. It was like, it was like, oh, wow, this is somebody I'd really like to get to know. And, um, and maybe I've just spent the last <laughs> 20 years trying to get to know them. <laughs> totally. Well, I think we it's character building for sure when you're faced with challenge. It's this vulnerable moment. For me, any anytime I try something newer and pushing myself to my limits, it feels really vulnerable. Like you yeah. feel like you might crack and like you might not be able to make it to the top or your physical limits might be reached. And I mean, while I've turned around plenty of times, like I've never had that moment of absolutely cracking open and being like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. So maybe it's this constant seeking of that too. And like you said, getting to know yourself on a different level is pretty special. Yeah, totally. I, I really, I really, really like that. And I love, I love hearing your stories about that too. That is like super, super cool. And that, I mean, that whole notion of pushing towards some edge, but also not taking it too far, not getting yourself hurt or getting yourself into a really serious pickle in the mountains where 
you have overextended or you've made a bad decision or, you know, you've like, you know, pushed onto that snow slope that you shouldn't be on or whatever. I mean, that's like a huge part of the balance, right? Is, is, uh, is pushing yourself into this challenge, pushing yourself into this like uncomfortable space, but then also having the wherewithal to, to like get out if, if you need to, if things aren't right. And that's, that's like so, so much of it. And I, I, it's, it's interesting. I look back at some of the early stories from this book when I was like operating under the influence of the, the generation of climbers in the United States that came before me who were just all about this attitude of like, you know, push it to the limit, toe the edge, give everything up in your life outside of climbing. And then you will become the best climber you can be. It was this very like niche and kind of ubermensch thing. And, uh, and I loved it and it, it sent me pretty far over the line a couple of times. And I feel really fortunate that I was able to walk that back and subsequently learn from it because that, yeah, that, that, like that kind of, that sort of tension that you just mentioned of like going to these places that push you and force you to learn and force you to be a better human, but also making sure that you come home in one piece. That's like. That is, that is, that is the tension that I feel like our lives exist on, which is pretty like, you know, kind of, kind of a lot sometimes. Um, I mean, it's also like really badass sometimes and like really great, but it's like, it can be kind of a lot of work. Yeah. No kidding. I like how you just said that it, you said it makes you a better human when you're in those moments. And how, how do you think, like, can you explain to the audience how you think that is portrayed? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I I think that the person that I want to be or the person I'm capable of being or however, you know, kind of whatever framing I want to get at on that is is somebody who is like forced to learn hard lessons, is is forced into situations where I am like challenged to do to do the right thing and and whether as like a specific experience or a metaphor for all this other stuff that we're taking on in our lives, the mountains just do that in such a profound way. And I mean, it's funny, like when you think about like the metaphor of climbing a mountain is used in like business meetings all the time, like we're going to climb this mountain. Um, but then, you know, for those of us who actually are, are properly attracted to those objectives and i'll be clear that it does not need to be like unclimbed peaks in the karakoram that can be that can be things close to home that can be what, whatever it is that like gets you outside of your comfort zone and gets you into a place where you're where you're learning and you are forced to like examine who you are and how you're getting at hard decisions like like mountain climbing is where i found it but i think you can find it in a lot of other places but that's that like that kind of challenge and like going back to that space time and time again and learning how to do better and building it into my life as a practice where you know I return to those spaces repeatedly in order to to get better um not only in terms of like my fitness or my skill but also like the like the mental models you need for for getting through that kind of terrain the the kind of overworking strategy the like the partnership the the like uh you know the size of the objective things like that and um and that's what that's what makes me who who I want to be. And I think it's also crucial to note that I, I found that the mountains are a place that have not only driven a lot of like learning how to do hard things, but 
But also for me, I feel really fortunate that through some really powerful partnerships, there are space that have taught me about working with others and taught me about compassion and taught me like how to like how to love really deeply. And um, it's it's interesting. This is speaking to kind of what I've heard from others about the book, folks who have read it. It's like they 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 they, they I've had a couple of people share that like I use the I use the word like love and adore about my climbing partners maybe more than other or older climbing literature, which has been a really interesting thing for me. I, I'll share that I really I, I just like really tried to hard to be as vulnerable as possible when writing this thing. And uh and I feel like I hear from climbing partners all the time that we like love and adore each other, these folks who are out in the mountains with and trying these really hard things. And hearing that that maybe folks who are like reading climbing literature hadn't really heard that view represented before is like, oh man, that's like such an important part of this whole deal. Like there's so much of what I come away with is this this sense of the sense of like what things can look like when you put together a really strong team that is like strategically dialed and all just care super deeply about each other. And that's like you can just get these incredible things done. And uh and that's like, I mean, that's been so much of my climbing career. Like, I don't, if you look at my climbing career, you won't see much soloing at all. Like it is, it is all with other people. And the reason for that is, is because that teamwork partnership component for me is just like one of the best parts of climbing. It's so good. It is just like, there's so much to get out of that. And, um, so yeah, there's a, there's there's some wandering thoughts on why I think it makes me a better human. <laughs> yeah, but very eloquently said. And there's so many different facets of what you just said into like why the mountains and doing these hard things make us better humans. And right before you said the love and adore aspect of your climbing partners, I was thinking about like how much an avalanche scenario has taught me about teamwork and either being a leader or being a follower and listening and communication. And I don't know, I just love that aspect of like, when you really break down what we're doing in the mountains and the safety aspect and having each other's backs, like it all comes back to this like love and this respect and the utmost, yeah. like, I don't know, the strongest camaraderie, which I find my mountain partners. And I have that, like the people I've been on adventures with, no matter where they are in the world or what stage we are at in my life, I will always remember those times and be like, yep, I got you. Like we're really close because of that. Totally. I mean, it's like the best. It's so good. Yeah. I love that we just dove into these like more thoughtful aspects, but I think we should totally also introduce you as this incredible professional climber. Do you call yourself a professional climber or alpinist? Oh, you know, that's a really funny question. I, I honestly don't really care. Um, I mean, it's funny. There are so many things you could kind of break down with that. Like, I feel like to be a professional climber, alpinist, like in some senses may mean that I have I get all of my money from being a climber, which, which I've actually made like a really specific decision over the last 15 years or so to always have work outside of climbing. So, so maybe I'm just a like semi pro hill walker. Um, <laughs> I but, <love> uh, this. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, I think alpinist is, is the word that I, that I really like. I think that, and I think when we talk about like what I go to the mountains to try, um, like my whole goal is 
alpine style climbing, which means like it's you and it's me and we're tied together with a rope with our backpacks on trying a route and going to try that style of climbing on some of the hardest unclimbed objectives and in, in what we'd refer to as like the greater ranges, like the Karakoram and the Alaska range and, and maybe the Andes. And, um, and, uh, and that's that right there going and trying these things that are oftentimes people have never heard of, um, unless you're kind of in the, you know, into the nuance of like what, what, you know, the last great unclimbed problems around the world are. But, um, but yeah, those, those are, those are the places where I have gravitated towards for a long time. And, uh, and I guess it's fair to say that I've been pretty successful with it. Like we've gotten, we've gotten up some pretty sweet hills. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. You are, uh, first of all, in 2014, you were nominated and a finalist for the Piole de Or. Am I saying that correct? Yeah. Nice one. People. Okay. Awesome. That. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then in 2020, you won the Piole de Or, which is like the Olympic gold medal for your genre of sport. And can you explain to people like what the Piole de Or, like how there's a lot that goes into that. That's a huge honor. Yeah, it's. It's a really big deal. Um, so the Pila Dior is the the golden ice axe. It's it's given out. Um, traditionally, it was given out in France or Italy. It's moved around a little bit recently. Um, it, it was it was given out in Poland for a couple of years there. And it's it's the it's the highest honor in in alpine climbing. Um, it really is the you know the gold medal or the Oscar or whatever of of the practice of, of mountain climbing. And, uh, and it's one part of it that's really, that's really cool. Michelle is that the values of that award are, are very similar to, to my personal values with climbing in terms of things like making sure everybody gets back safe in terms of not leaving a, like a bunch of trash on the mountain, um, getting at these climbs and what we'd refer to as by fair means and then and then a really deep kind of tradition of exploration so you know going and engaging with with some truly wild spaces which is which is really special and so to have to have that have that award bestowed on us for the 2019 ascent of linksar was like was a really really big deal um and and really a really special really special day Links are these mountains have such badass names. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool to me. I've like uh, oddly, well, not oddly, but I've I've been as I'm sure you have also from your writing. I can tell that uh, obsessed with like these old climbing literature, and the one that I actually recently read within the last two years, I want to say, is it Wojtek, the Polish climber? Yeah, Wojtek. Yeah, to Wojtek. Yeah, and he was like, um they asked him they wanted him to win the PLA to or like three times but he was like no I'm not going to go and accept this award because I do this for myself and I don't want to be recognized in a public space for these accolades because it would take away from my own personal like love for the for the sport and I I don't know I really resonated with his writing and his why of being in the mountains you referenced him actually in your book and I was like yes he's awesome <laughs> But oh, yeah. I also think well, that if I were going to get awarded that, I would go and accept the award. And he eventually did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Wojtek is, he is such, such a hero. I actually have a, I have a, um, a picture of 
Voitech on the wall in the garage where I train and it says, what would Voitech do? Um, <laughs> That's a good one. And, I need that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. I think I made it on the <laughs> clip art or something. Um, but I think I, I bet the book you're referring to is Bernadette McDonald's um, The Art of Freedom, which yes. is which is such a cool book. Um, it's so great. And it's super it's super interesting for me to to think about, you know, Wojtek saying no to that award and the purity of his um of his style and alpine climbing and for me to kind of compare that to what I'm doing now because it's so I feel like this is kind of getting this is sort of getting into it but um when like uh, when I was reading that book it came out not long before we were actually awarded the PLA and and I was thinking a lot about it and you know for me going and accepting that award and being a part of all that kind of pomp and circumstance it was really crucial to like communicate the fact that I was you know I don't I don't really believe in like competition and climbing but I do believe in celebrating hard things that are accomplished. And I love celebrating other things that folks have done and, and having this award kind of celebrate me and my partners was a really big deal. And particularly on that climb on Linksar, there was just, it was like the perfect climb. It was such a badass objective and our teamwork was so dialed. And it was this team where there were like two old guys and two young guys and due to like the strategy needed to get the permits and how to like strategize on the peak itself. And then all of the styles of climbing that were involved in the climb itself, it was like, it like, it took all of us in this really amazing way. And, and, and there was so much trust on that team that, that showed up in such profound ways on the climb itself and to have that experience celebrated by that award was really really by, by that experience celebrated by the PLA or was really really cool I also I also think it's worth noting that there's something that I've reflected on a lot over the years was um you know we both work with protect our winners and it was the year that I won that award was also the first year I had the opportunity to address Congress in a congressional hearing and it was like this kind of crazy moment where it felt like I should either choose like, oh, I could follow the climbing thing or I could go and like work on policy. And instead, I was I was kind of mentored down this path of like, let's try to do both and let's see if we can take this award, this thing that like this kind of fraught because like climbing alpine climbing competition is like not a good idea. It's just something that would just get people killed. But this award, if it is celebrating these things we love about climbing, then what if we like leverage that to drive the change in the world that we need? And that's like turned into this whole kind of further conversation that has just been so potent and has been such a cool way to like take something that, yeah, like could be kind of toxic, like awards and climbing, and instead pivot into something where it's like, oh no, we can actually leverage this to empower people around us and use it as a way to like leverage, you know, our need for change around climate and social equity and these things and like drive that change and be that person that we want to be in the world. And, uh, and that's like, that's very much a journey that like, 
I and we are still on, right? But it's um, but I think it kind of works. I think it's something that like is it, it feels it feels like it is worth continuing to pursue in a meaningful way, and that's ultimately like how that PLA has been leveraged is it's like in Congress and in conversations around advocacy and things like that, which is which feels like a pretty sweet way to use it. Interrupting this episode to shout out Sierra Nevada Brewery, independent since day one. I've sung their accolades many times over here on Care Less, Do More, and I'll continue to do so as this is a company that I have grown to love for their innovative and passion-driven focus on bringing you high-quality beer that's delightful to drink. Creative expression is at the core of it all, whether it's born from modern innovation or reverence for brewing history. Aside from their array of delightful beers and other beverages to drink, I'm a huge fan as they're committed to high-quality, low-impact brewing by investing in the largest solar array in craft beer, diverting 99.8% of their solid waste from the landfill, and building the first lead platinum production brewery in the United States. So sip on that, and thank you, Sierra Nevada Brewery, for supporting the show and so many other wonderful things in the outdoors. I was just thinking about, like, while there's an award in alpine climbing, the Peel or and and you reference it as a competitive nature, like there being an award is a competitive aspect. But when you're on these climbs, I can't imagine that you're actually thinking about that award at all. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you like can't be right. And it's, it's really no. interesting, Michelle, because there used to be there actually was an alpine climbing competition in uh, the USSR and they would take the best climbing teams in the country and put them all in a valley with a bunch of like really badass objectives. Most of it was down in places like Kyrgyzstan, some of these like really mountainous regions in the former Soviet Union. And then they would just say like, okay, go, go wild. And whoever does the coolest thing wins. And, and I mean, some of the climbs that got put up were epic. People were just taking these huge risks and like doing these incredible things, but also a lot of people got hurt. And a lot of people made really bad decisions. And it was this really clear sign that like competition and climbing is not a good thing. But, uh, and, and I think that to be honest, also the, um, the PLA committee has wrestled with that a lot. Um, I've, I've got a good friend who these days who sits on that committee and, um, and, uh, or at least, at least he did. And, um, and it's something they talk about, they talk about a lot in terms of like, okay, like how do we make this something that is celebratory of this thing that we love, that is celebrating these really cool things that folks are doing, but also make it something that is not going to encourage people to go and do stuff that's going to get them killed. And, um, and, uh, and I think they've, I think they've done a better job of that over the years, which is, which is crucial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is crucial. And I too believe in celebrating like really amazing achievements because I think we can go through life and overlook them too much, but it's important to, you know, I don't know, celebrate yourself a little bit and give yourself a pat on the back. I know some people are very pure and they don't believe in pride and that kind of stuff, but I think as humans, like it's a beautiful thing to celebrate each other as well and ourselves. Oh yeah. And we got to celebrate our wins. I mean- if you want, you know, you can you can celebrate in a way that is not toxic. You can celebrate in a way that brings people together. You can celebrate in a way that empowers people to do things. And and I think that we should be really considerate about all that. But when it comes down to it, you have to celebrate your wins. Um, we put so much time and energy into these projects to just 
move on to the next one without you know doing anything about it i think i think it's i think it's a really um like quite a missed opportunity so yeah i think i think we need to be conscious um we shouldn't be assholes but but also like celebrate celebrate your wins and uh and celebrate the wins of your friends and your community like that's i mean it's fun it's good it's positive it's lovely it feels good to be celebrated and it feels extra good to celebrate others I super agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, in your book, the opening chapter is about vitology. Is that correct? Your uh, yeah, yeah. And it kind of had me hooked right off the gate, right out of the gate. I was like, oh, this is epic. They're doing it. They're getting that alpine feeling. And in that chapter, you spoke about like being right on the edge. And uh, you know, you guys had set out, it was supposed to be 36 hours is what you had estimated. And then it turned into like a 90 hour epic. And you were right on the edge. You had no food left. You were like walking in whiteouts, had to wait out a storm. And when alpinists, and when I read about it, and when you speak about it, that edge of like sleeping in a bivouac when it's freezing cold and you have no food, like I would be lying if I didn't want to go there too in this odd way. But I also look at what you are doing and what other alpinists are doing. And I'm like, I can't even imagine myself in that space. So I'd love for you to kind of recap that mission and talk about like, was that your first time feeling like you're right on the edge there? I would I would love to talk about that trip. And, <laughs> and going back to that notion of kind of visiting who I was as a younger climber, that 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 trip was such was such a great example of that. So it was 2010 and I was in Alaska with my climbing partner Mark Allen and we were in the Ruth Gorge of um, Denali National Park. And the Ruth Gorge is this incredible zone where it's really easy to get to. Um, it's the, the glacier is very flat so they can, they can just drop you off. The bush pilots can drop you off wherever, wherever you like, and they'll just, you know, throw all your stuff out of the plane and then you have, you can fly in with like hundreds of pounds of equipment and food and coffee and everything you need. And, uh, and so you land in there and then, and then you're just kind of in this candy shop of really severe peaks that just strike out of the glacier in this incredible fashion and the walls are huge the walls are up to five or six thousand feet tall and and they're steep and they're just covered in rock buttresses and lines of steep ice and snow and in terms of a place to go test your metal in the alpine environment it is it's pretty it's pretty unreal and at the time i had been spending a lot of time in Yosemite and I'd actually been more or less living there and I had uh, been climbing El Cap pretty quickly and it, like some folks on this show will probably be familiar with the whole kind of El Cap climbing the nose or other routes in a day and I was I was quite quite into that and so we're looking up at this wall the south base of Mount Bradley where we had identified an unclimbed route that we wanted to try and in my uh my like climber arithmetic went something like oh well i've been climbing el cap in well under 24 hours and that's 3000 feet tall and this is 4500 feet tall and not quite as steep so i bet it takes a day and a half and that was like that was you know that was the that was the that's basically how we made the plan and then yeah totally and then two days later we are 
halfway up the wall, uh, trying to find a place to sleep. And there's a storm raging around us. And the climbing up into that point had been incredible. It was like right at the edge of my abilities at the time. It was really steep, technical, mixed climbing. You're, you're hooking your little, like your crampons and your ice tools over little edges on the rock and like kind of moving between cracks or moving between little ice smears and tic-tacking your way up this stuff. And, and, uh, it was, it was perfect. It was so good. There was, and there was some really good, like steep waterfall ice climbing and, and we were just having such a good time, but it was just going nowhere near as quickly as we thought it would. And, um, and so then there we are and a storm is blowing in and we're on this little ledge that's like the size of, I don't know, a small desk, like half the tent's hanging off the ledge and we're in there trying to trying to make food. And it was this, it was this moment where I'll be totally frank. Like if you and I were up there, I'd be like, listen, Michelle, we should rappel down and wait for a better weather window and get some more snacks. Um, (laughs) But at the time it was like, oh yeah, this, this is it. We are so close to the edge and I'm feeling strong and this is the climber I want to be. And we just kept going. We just kept climbing through the storm for another full day and <laughs> and then eventually got to the summit and and then the the slope that we had been planning on descending was totally loaded with avalanches and another storm had blown in so we ended up repelling the steeper side of the mountain which was opposite from where our base camp was so then we ended up in another valley and had to like walk all the way back around and uh we ate the last of our food on the summit so we were like very hungry and and it's just it's funny to dig back into those memories because it sounds awful it sounds so uncomfortable but i learned a lot about myself i learned a lot about what i was capable of and um and i just have this resounding memory of getting back to base camp and being like oh yeah this is sweet I should do this more, which is just such a ridiculous <laughs> reaction to an experience like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I feel like in some ways I've been kind of trying to walk back that climb for years. Like I remember there was like there were like probably four more expeditions to Alaska in the in the years after that, where I would like add a little bit of food to the bag and like before we launched from base camp and then I would like run out, but like wouldn't run out quite as close to getting back to camp. And then like. And I would add a little bit, and then and it was actually uh, this isn't in the book, but I bet you'll enjoy this. That um, one of my mom's friends was like, I was, I think I was explaining this to somebody at the dinner table, and they're like, "Oh my god, this sounds awful!" And she like gives me this bag of granola, and she says, "Okay, I want you to put this in your, I want you to pack your bag, and I want you to like pack the food that you think you need, and then I want you to put this bag of granola in there." And it was like some granola she had made, and um, and hopefully that makes it so you don't like starve yourself out there again. And I remember I was. <laughs> an hour's walk from base camp after another big climb up there. And I, uh, and I like finished that bag of granola and it was like, Oh, epic. Like that was like my mom's friend, Nina gave me like the perfect amount of granola to get back in one piece and have like the last snack before the hour walk back. And it was like, uh, yeah, we just, we just spent years kind of experimenting up there with how little you can bring on these climbs, how hard you can push, how hard you can like, nudge into a weather window and and how to make sure that you can you know that you can make it home in one piece and there were these epic years where we learned so much about what we were capable of and I'm, I'm really happy we survived to be to be frank 
Um, but also like these lessons I learned during those years were, were just like, I mean, I lean into them all the time in the mountains when I think about how to do things in a way that, that will allow for me to climb hard, but also get home in one piece and, and, mm -hmm. you know, and bring enough snacks. The snacks are super important. That's like something I would have anxiety about. Like when I think about those moments and being in the mountains without food, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> Dude, I like fully had to rebuild my mental model around snacks because I used to look at food as like weight. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to carry that. And I had to, I had to like kind of like really walk myself through a process of like falling in love with snacks and being like, this will be so much more fun if you have snacks, Graham. Just bring some more fucking snacks and like <laughs> you'll be fine. And uh and uh and yeah, so now now I bring lots of snacks on climbs now. I'm much better. <laughs> yeah, and when you're talking about like like the one time I've had, like I ran out of food on one micro expedition. It was in the North Cascades, it was out going to Mount Fury, which was I think it was like fifty miles. And so you have to pack for like I think we packed enough food for eight days. And we made a stop like after day two or something like midway in the forest. And we hung some bags in the trees with like the food that I was like, oh, I'm not carrying. Like my bag was like 78 pounds with like the food and the water that I was carrying. And I remember ditching a bunch of food and being like, I just can't carry this weight. And that was the one time where I was consciously aware of the fact that I might run out of food, which I did. But I like ran out like a, a, an hour's a walk away from the car. But I remember like being on that trip and seeing other people run out of food too. Like one guy, he was kind of on the trip and hired to carry gear. And he, I think he was a vegetarian and all he had was like nuts and seeds. And I was like, that is not, that would not sustain me. And he was like insistent on not taking our food. And I was like, Gabe, just like eat our food. Like you need some food. But yeah, I think he was probably the grumpiest of us all. Um, but for me, I was, de <laughs> I definitely recognize that like food is so important to me. That's a fear of mine. Yeah. But you're talking about like climbing up a vertical wall. Like you have to have way lighter packs to do that. And like every ounce matters. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I actually, so Michelle, I should share that I, um, I like read a bunch about your trip back into the, into the Pickett's range on Mount Fury. I thought that trip was so cool because like a, it looked badass, and that objective is super cool. And B, I think, uh, I think it just really proves that you don't have to go that far to have a really badass adventure. I mean, you have gone to some incredible places, some really, really incredible far out mountains, and to see you go to a range that is like in Washington State, in the lower forty-eight, you know, driving distant from Seattle. And, and engage with such a like such a cool adventure it was something that really that really got me stoked. It was something that was like, you know, I, I, I sometimes I sometimes personally index pretty highly on going far away, going, oh, I have to go to the Karakoram. And I, I love it over there. I love spending time in those really far away, remote, wild places. But but you kind of like like sometimes you don't have time for it. And yeah. sometimes sometimes like there are other priorities that show up and uh and it turns out that you, if you just kind of like look a little closer to home, that you can find some really cool things to do that will that will give you all of those all of those lessons that we talked about about like how to try hard things and how to like learn you know learning about yourself and all that stuff. And uh, like you don't need to go to the edge of the earth to do that stuff. Um, I mean, you certainly can if you if you want, but uh, but um, 
but yeah, it's like the, the Cascades or the winds or certainly lots of parts of Canada. It's like, there is just some incredible terrain that you can get at that can really put you through your paces, which is so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm loving the adventures out the back door and like currently right now in my life situation, like I'm keeping it close to home and that's a priority to me because I'm helping out with my family and everything. And, and I've been really inspired thinking about all these like micro expeditions, what you could do within a few days or cause like, I'm like, I could leave for three days and come back and like still plug in and help out. And it is so inspiring to just look out the back door and be like, okay, this is like what I'm setting out to do. And this is going to be a full on adventure. And yeah, the Cascades, that was a perfect example of it. But the Cascades to me are like, it's a little bit further away than my home, but those mountains are so inspiring. And I know that's where you cut your teeth in the climbing industry. Um, anyways, you said one thing that really uh, stuck out to me a, a minute ago. You said when you were climbing Vitology that there was ice smears and that made my skin crawl. <laughs> like, is, are you, like when I think about like smearing on granite, I'm like, that's when I'm like acting like a gecko and there's no holds like, but an ice smear, like what the hell is that? Well, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I kept getting into like the climbing vernacular. It is not a smear, like a, like slab climbing in like the rock climbing sense. But when you're, you know, when you're in that kind of what we refer to as mixed terrain where there's some ice, there's some rock, oftentimes there's some snow, and you're kind of like switching between all these different mediums, you tend not to be encountering ice that's like really thick. You're not encountering like frozen, like fat frozen waterfall ice or glacial ice. It'll be these kind of like bits of ice that are much more incipient and much more ephemeral, that are like quite thin and kind of like draped down the rock and there there are oftentimes these things you'd be really careful with uh because they are these kind of smears of ice across the rock but but they can oftentimes if they're thick enough um actually offer like quite safe and efficient passage through otherwise really challenging terrain so um i will be clear that in terms of uh how we are getting at those smears of ice we had crampons on so you're able to actually like, kick into the ice um and there are times when you're rock climbing and it gets icy and you have to put your foot on something that is covered in ice and it is something worth avoiding. It is, it is really, really quite suboptimal and you can work your way around it if you need to. But, um, but those also might be days to like, you know, go home and like drink some hot chocolate because you should probably go rock climbing when it's like a little bit warmer. You just brought up my only like almost epic in the mountains actually with thinking about that. I went to do Mount Whitney one time with two of my girlfriends and we were very proud and independent women and it was like 50% chance of snow. And we were climbing, I think it was the East Buttress, meant to be like a 5'6", mm -hmm. like pretty chill. And we scrambled up and soloed the first, I don't know how many pitches until all the guys were like, you guys shouldn't go. It's 50% chance of snow. And I'm like, 50% like? we can make it and we dressed and we had hand warmers we were like very prepared but all of a sudden it totally started to snow and we got off route and we ended up in an off width and we had ice smears now that i'm thinking about it and i was like this is terrible like an icy off width in the snow is like the worst thing and what we ended up doing you would love this actually you know those old photos i'm kind of obsessed with them um they're like of multiple climbers standing on each other's shoulders to get to the next ah, hole ah, 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 ah. yeah <laughs> Oh, yeah. This should That's be like uh, the 1940s shoulder stand. Hell yeah. Yes. 
Yes. That's awesome. And I like I was obsessed with doing those moves when they were very unnecessary. I'd be like, Emily, get on my shoulders. And she'd be like, okay, Ruben, climb up. And we would like climb pitches like that, like just for fun. And then in that instance, I was like, okay, guys, I got it. We're going to do this alpine shoulder stand. And like we did a three person shoulder stand and there was a sling up high. And my friend Hannah grabbed the sling, clipped in, and we made it through this icy off with. But it worked. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. I mean, that is that is so great. And I mean... It's really interesting. I think about that, Michelle, and it's like, that is, I mean, that is you getting out years and years of mountain experience and thinking about mountains and like being like, okay, I have a non-traditional solution for this problem. Let's try it. And it like totally works. And that is like, that is so cool. And that is so, I mean, it's so indicative of so much of spending time in the mountains, which is like going back time and time again so that you like build your kind of bag of tricks. Like we get so wound up about, fitness and um like how hard we can climb and those things are of course important but also like you just kind of gotta like have a lot of time in the environment so that when you run into something wacky you like have tools to deal with it and uh totally. that's, that's such a good example of of that you're like cool like i know what we can do <laughs> it was my so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we made it and the whole thing was like I think it was sub 12 hours door to door from Mammoth was like the time we were trying to beat and we did it and we got back and all the guy, all of the boyfriends were like, I can't believe you guys did that. They were like kind of frustrated. We had just had this epic adventure. We were so stoked. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, we clear, like, I know that well, Mount Whitney is like in California and gets a lot of sunshine. It's also like a 14,000 foot mountain. It's a big, it's a big peak. Like, isn't wait, isn't Mount Whitney this like tallest peak in the lower 48? Yes, in retrospect, so, yeah, like so. if a storm's going to hit, it's going to hit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That that makes me super happy. I I I love I love that. That's so great. <laughs> that was like a flash of a memory. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I've done an icy smear." <laughs> yeah. Classic. <laughs> Um, anyways, back to you. You were born in New Zealand, which was a fun fact that I didn't know. And another fun fact that I didn't know was that Sir Edmund Hillary is on the $5 bill. And I love how, uh, I don't know, like they put these climbers and individuals who have done incredible things on the highest pedestal. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's so different than the United States or North America where climbers and i think I, I i think we could say just kind of mountain people in general or these like kind of like consider these like kind of dirtbag wing nuts who like go out and do this crazy stuff versus the like heroes of their nation and something that is like really embraced by the culture and i'll share i was actually just over in the united kingdom at at the uh kendall mountain festival and it's so different it's 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 really similar to down in new zealand where where climbing is kind of like has this national tradition and people engage with those stories, not not just to like go climbing and learn about climbing and be climbers, but also to like celebrate, you know, things like hard accomplishments of their fellow countrymen and their fellow global citizens and things like that. And uh, and there's for sure a lot of like history of colonialism and you know, racism and all that stuff. But um but I think if you if you kind of look at where we are at now with that, um, it's it's brought it's brought us to a space where like climbing is a sport that is like really well respected and is like really it's really lovely 
to engage with. It's like, it's really nice to go spend time somewhere where it's like, oh yeah, like we have a lot of respect for what you do. And it's like, oh really? I'm not just like some, some like kid living in the dirt in Yosemite who like, you know, is a running away from the Rangers and trying to not get arrested for sleeping under boulders. Like I'm actually like a seen as a stand up part of the community, like epic. Okay, cool. It's like, let's do some, let's do some work. And to kind of think about, I think I, I was actually thought about this a lot. I didn't really talk about this in the book at all, but that, that kind of respect for uh, what we do has made a lot of the work that you and I take on like in DC a lot easier for me, I think just because I, I've kind of been in settings as a climber where I like had to put a nice shirt on. I've been in settings where, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not like I like met the queen or something like that, but you know, it's like, you know, if I, in New Zealand, I ended up at some kind of like formal events, like celebrating climbing and things like that when I, when I lived down there. And, um, and that's just kind of one step away from, from, uh, you know, like being able to engage with government and like have discussions about policy. And then going to the UK, I was, I was just hanging out with Sir Chris Bonington, who is one of the greatest alpinists ever come out of the United Kingdom. And he's a, he's a knight, you know, it's like, he's, you know, they like, they like tapped him on the shoulders with the sword and gave him a, gave him a knighthood. And, uh, I don't know if they actually do the sword thing, but, um, but, uh, but I you bet know, it's they like, did. It's pretty traditional. I think, I, I, I think it might be, I should, I bet there's a video of it somewhere, but, um, but it's like, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like, it's pretty cool. It's like respect to these, these people who like go to the mountains and try hard things and like are respected members of the community. And it's, not, certainly not necessary, but it, but it is it is like it's kind of it's kind of nice. Um, I should also share. I should just directly address the fact that I do not have a New Zealand accent. I have not for a long time, and uh, the whole story there is that my folks are actually from Kansas, and um, I don't think they'd mind me saying that they very much accidentally got pregnant and then tried to get as far away from Kansas as they could, and so they ended up <laughs> in New Zealand, and and I was born down there and then and then we lived down there for about five years and um and so that's you know that's where I spent my like really young years and then when I was in high school and I was exposed to climbing and then subsequently like trying to figure out you know university or college or whatever um it pretty quickly came to my attention that I could go back down to New Zealand where education is socialized or like mostly socialized and and so I could go down there and get a really high quality like very affordable education and also the mountains down there are super badass and so it was a really great place to go like cut my teeth in some hills that have really severe weather and really dramatic um relief and huge glaciers and um and so it was like it was a pretty formative time to go down there and I actually went down there and studied glaciology um so I spent a lot of time studying glaciers and then uh and then spent a lot of time climbing above them and that was like a very formative time. So while I do not have a Kiwi accent, um, it is, it is a place that is super close to my heart and is, uh, is, is a place that I really, I don't make it back to physically as much as I used to, but, uh, but I, I mentally spend a lot of time hanging out down there. It's a, it's a place that's really, really lovely. I love that. In your book, one thing that like really stood out to me as a fellow athlete too, is your, kind of constant and I haven't finished the book so I'm I don't want to give the ending away for myself either but this concept <laughs> of like really wanting stability in your life but simultaneously pursuing climbing as 
an avid and passionate climber and that dichotomy of two different worlds almost. And I'm curious, like, you studied glaciology while you were a climber and pursuing that as a profession or semi-professional hill walker, whatever you said. <laughs> um, you always, <laughs> I loved that. That was a very humble way of saying that. Um, you always came back and had other work as a glacier. Was it a glaciologist or? Well, I, I, I actually, after school, I worked as a, um, well, I, worked as a I worked on the star side Yosemite for a while and then ended up working. Uh, working in geophysics so like rocks not ice but but really yes. similar remote sensing techniques um but yeah um sorry you were still asking your question keep going yeah i guess i just wanted to kind of have that conversation about like searching for that stability and not like really necessarily finding it in climbing but always knowing that you wanted that and like have you found that do you feel it's a really interesting question and i i'll i'll start by saying that the book doesn't end with like, ah, and now I am stable. Um, there's no, there's, <laughs> there's like the, I feel like if anything, the book ends with like, all right, like we're going to keep trying for stability. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I mean, like I just, uh, it's one of the things I talk about. I, th I think this comes up in the book is the concept of like sensitive guy points or sensitive partner points where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I want to go to the mountains, but I also recognize I have to recognize that those have like a like me spending a bunch of time in the mountains has like a bunch of um as as like a really big drain on on my marriage, on my my relationship with Shannon. And uh and and I just came back from I had gone climbing and then went on this book tour and came back and Shannon was like, just so you know, your sensitive guy points uh score is very low right now. You've got some work to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is like, it's like, it's like a way that we communicate about it. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a mean thing to say. It was just totally like, just, you know, like you've been spending pretty hard recently and we should hang out. Um, it's like, cool. Thank you for, thank you for having me in the loop. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think like, that's the thing, right? Like every time I feel like I've like sort of figured it out for a second, something changes and, and that's, and that's life. And I think that that's, the, the the biggest thing is not like trying to find the one perfect equation that is the balance that will last for the rest of your life. It's instead like building models through for your for your life through which you can like see where that balance is at and make sure that you're keeping, you know, all those balls in the air and um and making sure that you're like taking care of yourself and taking care of those around you and, and really kind of like being clear about what, what priorities you need to, you know, keep on the top of the stack at any given moment. And, you know, and, and some of that is like recognizing that when I'm climbing a lot, I'm being oftentimes a pretty crappy husband, um, and a pretty crappy climate advocate. And when I'm being, when I'm like, being a really great climbing advocate, I might be being a pretty crappy climber. And, uh, and also like when I'm being a really great husband, like maybe my climbing is not always right where I want it to be. And like, you kind of like, you're oftentimes just kind of moving between those different phases. And, and it can be really frustrating to say like, oh my gosh, I'm not climbing that well right now. And that bums me out. But also like, what if you just say like, Hey, like I'm being a really kick-ass partner to Shannon right now that's sweet our relationship is a really good spot this is awesome and 
uh, you know, and then like as as opportunities allow, like phase climbing in in a meaningful way. And um, but never but also never let it let it like let that ball hit the floor. Right. Like always like make sure that you're still training or, you know, whatever you need to do in order to um, be like kind of keeping it above a certain threshold. And I'll share that the thing I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of like what I try, what I like, like the purpose of writing the book or whatever. And, and I think that the, the thing that has real, I've really come down to in terms of like the, the three, the three things are one, I, I've lost a lot of climbing partners. I've lost a lot of friends to this practice. And that's, that's a big, there's a lot of sadness in this book and a lot of, a lot of loss. And, um, and I, I carry that with me all the time. And I also really focus on that being something that I carry as like a sense of celebration, not just sadness. And I really try to portray that in the book in terms of like talking about these folks that we've lost and, and not just kind of brushing past it, but really engaging with it and celebrating those folks. Um, and then I've also gotten a lot of really good advice over the years. And if I think about like how I have gotten to where I am now, like most of it has been due to really good advice from, from mentors. Um, and, and, uh, and I really tried to capture that advice in the book so that somebody who's looking for ways to kind of balance, um, different components of their own life can like, can sort of like see those things stand out along the way. Things like Kai's 100 year plan or Steve's strategy for like maintaining partnerships and like trying really hard in the mountains and, um, and like try to contain those in a way that, that uh, like, yeah, are, are quite useful and, you know, not to make it like a self-help book or something like that, but just, but also to like really represent that, that work. And then, and that like, and try to like make that, that mentorship or that good advice accessible to a broader audience. And, and then the last thing is, is really this idea that I, I was brought up on the idea, Michelle, that like balance is like to be balanced is to be a bad climber or to be in balance with things is to be like, just kind of average at everything and not great at anything. Like the sort of like Jack of all trades kind of, mm-hmm. um, uh, idea. And, and I've like really found that by balancing all this, like these trips to the mountains to go try these big, hard mountains and my marriage with Shannon and this work and advocacy that you and I are both taking on with protect our winners. It's like, it's actually brought me into the space where because of that balance, I've become a better climber because of that balance, I've become a better husband and because of that balance I've become a better advocate and I've been somebody who operates with more purpose in their life and more like need for downtime in their life and then when I do go to the mountains because of that rest and because of that purpose my motivation is really high and and it's and it's trying to kind of share a different narrative that like yeah like I mean we love the idea of the person who just like focuses on one thing and that's all they do and they throw everything else away but but it's i think it's kind of i think it's kind of old i think that's like i think that's something that we can move away from i think we can be more complex humans and community members and participants in these practices that we adore i think we can i think we can i think we can kind of 
do a lot of this. And I think we can look for ways that it can like all, all this stuff can work together in conjunction and, and really make us the people that we want to be. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, like the end of the book is not like, okay, and here is the final equation. I have figured it out, <laughs> it's like, it, it, but it is, but it is like, Hey, like this is, this is where I'm at. And this is, and I am still figuring this out and I'm going to continue to for the rest of my life. And, uh, and, and I really look forward to that. And, um, and I, I really hope that, you know, I, I think there are, you know, folk, folks will be inspired by the climbing stories. Uh, folks will be inspired to, to take action on, on climate and, uh, and, and really like as people get introspective with their own lives, like look for ways that they can like add these things together in like really powerful cumulative ways that make it all better. Yeah. Yeah. That was so beautifully put and well thought out. Um, it's interesting because I'm giving a speech on Thursday here locally for the Winter Speaker Series with Album Glow Sports. And um, I have a little bit in my speech about balance because for the longest time, I mean, up until I was about 30, I was very singularly focused on the mountains and excelling in the mountains and, um, you know, getting quite into climbing. And really, that's the only place I wanted to be. And I think meeting my now fiance, Aaron, has opened up my eyes to a world of other aspects of life that I really appreciate and have learned from and like you said have made me a better skier and a better person ultimately and a more complex person but the word balance for me like I've recently been moving away from that a little bit like balance literally means like a, an even distribution of weight enabling someone mm. or something to remain upright and steady right and yeah. so my with the help of my therapist she was like what if you stopped like searching for balance and you replaced that word with harmony and oh, harm yeah, yeah right and harmony is the combination of simultan or simultaneously sounded musical notes that produce chords having a pleasing effect and i was like oh damn yeah harmony seems a lot more achievable to me that is and so I <laughs> epic i love that so <laughs> much oh my because God. i find like if balance is a three-legged stool like my family is going to be up here at sometimes when I'm prioritizing that, but it's never quite in balance. Like my sport yeah, will be here. Always advocacy. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, do you mind? Do you mind if I borrow that? I just think Not, that's yes. so nice. I love it. It's helped me kind of accept where I'm at. I think just the simple word change of being like, oh, things feel pretty harmonious. It's pleasing. I'm happy and content right now. As opposed to being like, oh, I'm like, like right now, uh, I've been quite open about like just caretaking for my dad who has dementia and Parkinson's and a pretty fast acting dementia. And like, I feel like I'm still maintaining my career. I'm like some things I've had to put on hold and I'm prioritizing my family in a huge way. And I'm super proud of that. And like that in my old definition would be like very out of balance but like right now yeah. it feels so harmonious and so like i don't know it's very like i'm very happy with where we're at worth where i'm at in my life of like first of all i recognize that it's a huge privilege to be able to set things aside and focus on my family in that way but um yeah i don't know harmony it's stuck harmony uh, i also I, I knew about your dad i'm really i'm really i'm really sorry that that he's that he's sick i also um I, I really want to applaud you for for like seeing seeing that need and just stepping in i mean 
it's really it's a really big deal and uh and it's i mean in careers like we have i think it's i think it's honestly like quite hard and um you yeah something i've been thinking about a lot is like um is like what you know it's like we we work with all these brands that support us in this work and i don't know i guess it feels to me like there's kind of a difference today in terms of what those brands and what the community is asking for from its heroes in the community folks like you it feels to me like they're not like necessarily just looking for people who are like hucking the sickest lines or climbing the hardest routes they're also looking for like real people and and it's been something i yeah it's like it's it's been kind of challenging to deal with I, i'll say on my side where i've had like long chunks of time where I don't go to the mountains or maybe I focus on uh, family stuff or, or this climate stuff. Um, but it's like really interesting to like, think about like what our community is asking for from us, which is like, does take some like vulnerability and does take some like kind of like maybe just not like going super hard in the Hills all the time but still balancing that in with what we want to do. And, and maybe this is something you want to cut from the podcast. Don't like, if, if you don't worry about no, it. No, I like, love it. I love it. It's like, it's like super, it's like super interesting, right? Like I like, like making like, you know, like people like, I, I yeah, like I think it's so cool that you're making that decision to be like, I need to be here for my family and I'm, and I'm going to do that. Um, and also prioritizing like your partnership so that it becomes, you know, you're like you have a fiance which congratulations that's incredible <laughs> um that's so cool um i just i yeah that that like that takes a lot of that takes a lot of a lot of courage and a lot of gall and it's like it's awesome it's it's, it's like that's i think about like who was influencing me when i was a young climber and not to like say that they were wrong but i feel like the influence that I want to have on the next generation or on my community is like a little bit different. And, uh, and that's, and that's progress, I think. And I think that's like the kind of world we want to live in. So thank you for doing that. It's really cool. Thank you. I really appreciate everything that you just said. I think um, you actually spoke to it in your book and in a similar tone of what you just said, like the people that the people that you admire aren't just for their athletic feats, but for who they are and what they give back to the community or to society. And that's kind of something that I've always also felt like as a young skier. I think that the aspirational athlete and these people that we tend to put on pillars um, in the outdoor action extreme sports world, I think that's huge. I think that's important because it gives us something to strive for. But I think, like you said, there is a shift where there is a lot more acceptance to us being human. And there's a lot more like, I think it's really important. And I think the shift that I'm seeing is like the people that we put on those pillars, like they better also be pillars of their community. And I think that that like going into your climate advocacy and all the work that you do with Protect Our Winners, like that is a legacy and that will be remembered for a very, very long time. And athletes that I have seen that um, maybe they don't they don't give back or they don't necessarily have like uh, they don't live. I don't know how to say this without being judgmental, but like maybe they aren't living up to the morals that I see in an athlete and that I want to look up to. Um, Maybe they're not they're not seeking harmony. 
yes, they're not seeking harmony. <laughs> I don't really, I, I like lose my interest in them a little bit. I'm like, oh, on to the next one. Like this person over here is doing really cool shit for their community and they're giving back or they're like marching up Capitol Hill and talking to congressmen and women and like Congress people. And like, that's what inspires me. So I think I'd love to dive into your work with Protect Our Winners because you are the lead of uh, Protect Our Winners Climb and the athlete affiliates that are under your umbrella. And you have really taken it upon yourself, like much more than most uh, action sports individuals that I come across. And I think also maintaining your role as a climber, I I like my hats off to you for everything you've done in that uh, realm of work. I think it's really, really cool. So yeah, you're doing it too. And it's amazing. Thanks, Michelle. That means, that means, that means a lot. Um, And yeah, I think, well, okay, let's speak, let's speak about, let's talk about Powell a little bit because I, 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 I like love talking about the advocacy stuff and I, I want to be really clear that like, I, I think you, I think you joined the Powell team well before I did. Like I, in my memories of when I was like first getting involved, you were, you were already one of the like, one of like the key folks involved with that work like it's funny for it's funny to have you say like say that about me and be like wait but michelle like i feel like i was following in your footsteps um (laughs) and um and it's like it's it's really interesting it's it's this thing like we we can talk about pow and protect our winners is an organization that was founded in 2007 and by jeremy jones who was like out in the mountains and worried about the changes he was seeing and started looking for ways to drive action around that these days it's you know we're 15 15 or 16 years into it and it's a pretty dang robust organization with a with a really really high quality policy shop that's doing some badass work um a really a really great team that is running social will marketing campaigns to like drive change and how our community is thinking about climate and their involvement in that work and then, uh, and then we have this incredible group of alliance members, many of whom are professional athletes, who we work together to empower to utilize their platforms in order to uh, drive the change that we need. And that's and the, the change that we're focused on is is not necessarily personal change, not like oh, ride your bicycle or fly less. It's looking at the systems in which we live. And how we update those systems so that we can bring clean energy to everybody in the country and everybody on the globe. And we can keep moving forward with all this incredible progress that we have in our society, but do so in a way that is in better and better harmony uh, <laughs> with, uh, with with the world around us. And so that everybody can have clean air and clean water and not be having to deal with the, these dramatic impacts of, of climate. And, um, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, we could, we could dig into the policy stuff for the like specific messaging, but I think the thing that I, that kind of thinking about what we're talking about that I really uh, is one of my, the things that I most appreciate about this. And I'm just reminded of all the time is that we are this community, like we, people who go, to the mountains and go to the trails and and go and recreate outdoors. We were people who had these incredible relationships with natural spaces, natural spaces that are like pretty ubiquitously being impacted by climate. 
And that means that like, we're these people who have these stories that people like to listen to. And they're stories that have a really potent climate component. And that means that we, there are stories that we can utilize to like get around the like wedge issues that are plaguing our nation or the, you know, the super divided politics. We can just start talking about this like earth that we live on and our relationship with it and utilize that as literal common ground to create better inroads with the communities around us and have like real down to earth conversations about climate and its impacts and the things that we need to do. And sometimes maybe we need to like leave out global warming and leave out the green new deal and instead just like talk about energy security and jobs, but it's all kind of the same thing. And we can all, we can all, we can like use those stories to help kind of guide that conversation forward and bring more people in. And the other component to that is, and the reason that like, I just, I keep like getting more and more fired up about this work in the outdoor industry and the outdoor community is that this work in advocacy on climate and its intersection with social justice and community health and social equity, um, it requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of courage. And those are two basic skill sets that our community just has so much of. Like we are a community of people who go try hard things that scare us. And we are a community of people that like do that time and time again and look at it as a lifelong practice that we engage with and we get better with. And like that same model is exactly what we need to do with the climate conversation. Like it's going to be hard work. It's going to continue to be hard work. It's going to continue to require kind of stepping into uncomfortable territory, having challenging conversations and stepping into spaces where you maybe feel like outside of your comfort zone. And it's going to require that being a practice in our lives for like the rest of our lives. Like I don't have any expectation that we're going to have this climate and it's follow and the follow on impacts of moving towards a clean energy economy. I have no, I have no, uh, um, misconceptions about the fact that like, I'll probably be working on this for like the rest of my life. It's not something we're going to like solve in like, you know, 10 years. It's like, there's so much work in front of us and there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. There's a lot of good stuff happening. It is moving in the right direction, but there is, there is so much work to do. And, uh, and it's like, and when I think about that, in some ways I'm like, oh man, that seems like a lot of work. And then it's like, also like, wow, that's like exactly the same way I think about my climbing. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, uh, and that's why I think that like in many ways, like we as the outdoor community are the people or at least some of the people who are needed in this movement. And that's like what POW is all about is empowering our outdoor community from, you know, the pro athletes to the scientists, to the folks working in the industry, to the folks who are just like getting down with some like good old fashioned recreation. Like that's like, like getting everybody along on this journey in a way that is meaningful and thoughtful and approachable and is not totally overwhelming, but is something that we can pour ourselves into in a way that will drive the change that we need. And that's like, and, and that gets me so, that gets me so fired up. And that's like, that's, that's what keeps me going with this work all, all the time. 
very eloquently stated as everything <laughs> that you've said. I mean, so far. I, I just like spent a lot of time with words, Michelle. So like, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> it's beautiful though, and and I think like you just touched on it in the end there. Like, it can very easily feel overwhelming especially if you jump on any news channel and look at like all the articles related to climate change. Um, but I think it's really important to remember as individuals that you can take really small steps to start. And uh, like, like we've been referring to the mountains, like being vulnerable in those small steps, no matter if it's just signing up to be a member of Protect Our Winners or you could take it as far as going to a town council meeting and speaking about whatever it may be an issue that you're passionate about like those moments also teach you about yourself and they allow you to grow in these really beautiful ways and talking about the complexity of being a human and all these other aspects that we're interested in I think it's a an incredible opportunity to kind of like I don't know rise up and challenge yourself and and I think you know going back to the small steps like protect our winners like if you join and become a member of protect our winners every name we have in the outdoor state is the collective uh, kind of word that we use to describe all of the outdoor recreationalists that are part of protect our winners every name we have on that list gives us power when we go to capitol hill and present these bipartisan um ideas or legislation or whatever that may be i think it's important to remember that's like a really small thing that you can do that actually does go quite far. Oh yeah. I think to really speak to, um, like, I think sometimes that's, that's, that's the one thing that I feel like is worth us talking about a little bit is that like, you know, like you and I have these opportunities to like go to DC. It's like, you know, it's like when you tell a, tell a representative from California, like, Hey, listen, Michelle Parker wants to come for a meeting. They're like, Oh yeah, we'll make time for that. Um, unless his is, name's Tom McClendock. and um um, and that's like that's like really cool and it's gratifying and it's like really powerful work also though the like local work that that you're taking on in there where you where you live and but you're in california are you in california or nevada yeah california yeah yeah yeah, sorry i I can never remember quite where that border is down there um sorry Uh, totally um the uh like you know the local work that that we take on and the local work that is so approachable for for so many people like to go to a city council meeting or just kind of pay attention to what's going on or 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 vote in a local election in a way that prioritizes climate um that that work is so important and when we think about climate solutions and the climate movement Like, first off, when we look at like how movements kind of like work in a democracy, like most of the time they start small and they grow and where they start is in communities and then they grow to the state level and then they they show up, they start showing up at the uh, at the federal level. And so when we talk about climate, like like driving on that community, county, local work is so important and also something really interesting. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day that that climate is this thing where like the green energy solutions that we need to implement in order to fix our relationship with fossil fuels is it's all like it's all local. It's all like 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 
green energy in one place is not the same as green energy in other places. Like some places have solar, some places have wind, some places have geothermal. And, uh, and it means that we all kind of need to like think about the local geography that we live in and how we can like be building clean energy into that space in a way that doesn't totally disrupt the ecosystems. Um, but, but does, you know, have a meaningful impact on the way that we produce electricity and, and harnesses the, the energy that is available to us locally. And, uh, and so that's like, it's a re there's a really interesting kind of like practice that I recommend to folks, which is like, as a first step, like, where do you get your water and where do you get your electricity from? And who controls like those decisions? And, uh, and how do you start like kind of messing with that? And I think that as you, as you start to like pull on those threads, you'll find that the levers of change available to us to like dramatically impact our local communities can actually be pretty, pretty big. And, um, and then if you think about lots of people doing that across the country, then you end up in a situation where like the federal work can support that. But like these local communities are taking that on and making it happen. And it's just like, so it's like, yeah, like that local work is, is easy for many of us to get at. And it's just such a crucial part of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And y'all came here to Tahoe. I was actually a little tied up with my father, but um, for a recent Protect Our Winter Summit, I feel like I might be a touch behind on all of what's going on. Is there anything new happening with Protect Our Winters that's worth talking about? Um. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like you're pretty in touch, Michelle. And you looking after your dad <laughs> is like so so dang crucial. Um. I I just like I've got so much so much love and respect for that. Um. And in terms of what we've got cooking. Right now, um, you know, we're, we're, we're wrapping up uh, 2023, which has been a really powerful year of um, working on clean energy implementation. So we've been doing a lot of work on how do we actually like get some of these clean energy projects to break ground um, and, and like sending, sending athletes in to, to testify um, at like public hearings and things like that on the importance of clean energy and how this is the future that we all need. Um, we've also been working a lot on a bill that um, is is probably um, going to be introduced to Congress here at some point, um, which we're calling the Outdoor State Bill, which is really focused on the the money that is being spent on new transmission lines across the country, which are crucial for the um, green energy infrastructure that we want to put in kind of in a nutshell. You know, we have all these cars that are running on fossil fuels. We have all these homes that are running on fossil fuels and if we move all those over to electricity which is the first step in decarbonizing um it's going to require a lot more electricity and uh and the next step of course is to um clean up where that electricity comes from but uh but we need to be able to transport a lot more electricity so updating the electrical grid is a really big part of the conversation and something that we saw that was kind of left out was community benefits for communities that that transmission is running through so we're doing a lot of work make sure that different communities that are housing infrastructure are also benefiting from that infrastructure. Um, and that's been, that's been really cool. And then since it's, it's been a non, you know, non kind of like major election year, but, um, but we did, we, we took the opportunity to get super involved with um, some rural electric co-ops. So the ways that um, rural communities control where their electricity is coming from 
is oftentimes run through a co-op board of elected officials. And, um, and so working with, working with rural communities in the mountain West in order to help them better understand and control where their power is coming from and the levers of change that they have in order to control that. Um, and that's all been really gratifying work. It's been really, really cool. And, um, and then as we look out at next year, um, we, you know, we have, we have a really big election coming. It's like, it's going to be a really big deal. Um, and the success uh, the continued success of a lot of our work is predicated on that election. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how the, uh, the candidate on the left is like, is old and maybe not that great, but and like, oh my gosh, how can we vote for this guy? But I'll tell you what, like sure is better than the other guy. And, um, we're gonna we're gonna choose between two imperfect candidates. There's one that is more imperfect, um, and uh, and so we're gonna be driving really hard on that. And and I'll share that a lot of my work at POW personally, recent like over the last year, has been like understanding ways we can better empower our our athletes and give them tools and resources and training to to go and like build this work really authentically into their own lives. And, uh, and I'm really excited for how that's going to flourish next year as we, as we get closer to this election and we encourage people to utilize their voice and utilize their vote and engage with their communities. So I think we've got, we've got some really big, important work coming up and, um, and we're gearing up for it really hard. And, uh, I'll, I'll share, I'm really optimistic about the next election. I'm really optimistic about where we're going with climate, but Oh boy, there is a lot. There's a lot to do, and uh, and um, and I, I feel really fortunate to be in a position where I can dive in and do a lot of that work. So that's, I think I've got I've got an expedition in the spring. I'm going to go to Alaska and go try to rage on some steep mountains up there. And then the second half of my year is going to be um, pretty dang focused on on a uh, electoral politics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with everyone and and again you are you are a wordsmith so it was great to hear it from your voice for sure. I think a lot yeah. of times speaking about that stuff feels intimidating and it feels like uh you know, I don't know enough to speak about this, but when you do teach something or you speak about it and it kind of forces you to learn it even better and so I think that's one thing that I've really appreciated with Protect Our Winners is that roadmap that they've allowed me to learn and grow as an advocate for the planet. And that is, like you said, the common denominator, the common ground for all of us. But I, I think, yeah, they are a great resource for information. It's relatable to the outdoors. And no matter if you're a hunter, a fisher, skier, climber, whatever that is, it is a huge resource. And so, yeah, thank you for filling us in and for doing the work that you do. It's amazing. Oh, totally. And thank, thank you too. And I'll share that the, that we have the team pal thing, like the membership that you mentioned earlier. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, which, uh, which we're really dialing in the resources that are available for that group and how like, you know, it's like we get, so we get kind of like stuck on like the pro athlete thing sometimes, which, which is great. Like the, the, the like leaders of our community and getting them empowered is so crucial, but I'm, I'm really excited about this membership program and how it's going to be able to empower the broader community in a really meaningful and actionable way, um, both around the elections and, and outside of it, which is like really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think uh, I love chatting with you about all these things because one one of the things that I've noticed about you, and I don't remember why I was on your website like years ago, but just if you get you all have to go check out gramzimmerman.com. Um, <laughs> but there's like, I mean, you used to own a production company, but you've been a director, an editor, a camera operator, a producer, the athlete, the talent in the film that you directed. Um, you have worn many, many hats. And when I think about myself as an athlete and the kind of upward linear trajectory of myself anyways, like these other aspects of life have kind of propelled me forward. They've kept me engaged in my sport and they've kept me really interested in my sport. Um, you know, directing films or having podcasts, getting ideas from you. Like I'm so inspired after these conversations, but do you feel like that like going back to that balance and harmony conversation, like doing all these other things, has that helped you in your sport? And has that helped you kind of continue to find the love there and the growth there? I, uh, I absolutely think that it has. I, I mean, it's really interesting to consider if there was a pathway, there was like, there was kind of like a trail on this like journey of life that I could have taken where I just, didn't do anything other than climbed. And it's something I, it's that I actually think about this quite a bit. And it's like, it's really interesting to consider, like, was there, was there some point where I made a choice because I had the ability to just climb full time and not think about anything else. And, and I don't, I don't know if there really was like, I don't, you know, it's like, I've always had to work to like pay the bills. I've always, um, you know, and then, by the time that I was getting paid enough as an athlete that hypothetically I could have like lived off it. Um, I had all this work going on outside of it, either with, uh, you know, a storytelling and, and content production or with protector winners that was like, well, there's no way I'm going to stop doing this because this is sweet. Um, and it's, so it's, it's always kind of been kind of been baked into the model. And, and I really, as I, as I think about that question, which is a really, I, I just want to really like, it's, you know, the, like, what, what is it that I go and I get from the mountains and what do I go? What am I, what am I going out there to get either for myself or for the community or for the world or for whatever? And, you know, it's like, and it's a lot of it is these stories, these stories that we can utilize to inspire folks around us. A lot of it is our stories that we can utilize to drive the change in the world that we need. And, um, and a lot of it are the lessons that I, you know, I, and we have been, been able to apply towards these other parts of our lives and these really challenging components of our lives. And, and also, you know, like learning how to celebrate our wins. And, and so I think that for sure the, um, the mountains have, uh, been something that like when they're in harmony with these other things, it's, it's all better. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll share, I'll share a story from, from the book and just from the climbing career briefly here. That is, um, so in 2021, I went to K2 or Choguri, um, which is the second highest peak on the planet. It's in Pakistan. It's a truly badass mountain. And, uh, and we were going to try the first Alpine style ascent of the peak via its west ridge and we were going to try a new direct finish on it so it was like 
the the peak kind of hasn't really it hasn't been done like in alpine style properly and uh and there was this like direct finish on the west ridge that hadn't been done so we had this like super audacious um goal and we were really fit we had all the right gear we were like we were you know we were super ready for it it was awesome and uh and we acclimatized on an adjacent peak and then we went to actually try the thing and to kind of give you an idea of what this looks like like we this is like we i think we've been like gone for about four or five weeks at this point like this trips just take forever and um and uh and so it's like we're four or five weeks in we're super acclimatized we're really strong we've got all the right you know bits and bobs attached to our harness and in our backpacks and uh and we're up there climbing and the climbing felt so good michelle it felt so dang good we we're just like moving so fast and so well on this like truly incredible mountain on this huge like it was like this like massive massive face and um and and the weather was really good. And, uh, and then we're up there at about 7,000 meters, um, or about 23,000 feet. And this is like an altitude where you're kind of normally thinking about like maybe putting on the puffy, puffy suit, like maybe not the whole thing, but maybe just part of it, but like traditionally pretty cold. And it was really hot. It was like 12 degrees centigrade. It was like 44 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, and so we're up there and we're sitting on this ledge. that's not very big. And, um, and uh, like the size of a co- like you know coffee table or something, and uh, and the mountain's just collapsing around us. Like what, when a when a peak like that experiences heat like that, all the rock falls apart, all the ice falls apart, all the snow starts to avalanche, and we're just like sitting in this little island of safety, just like you know really kind of having this hard time of it, and um and uh, trying to figure out what to do. And it was this moment where I you know if, like we ended up rappelling and getting off this peak, we ended up not climbing the route that year which could have felt like just a total failure like a waste of two and a half months in pakistan and a lot of resources and a lot of a lot of time away from home and and it's really interesting because that is subsequently turned into one of my most like important stories for talking to communities and talking to lawmakers about climate change and about the change that we're seeing in the big mountains and the high altitude, high latitude parts of the world, this change that is now showing up at our front doors in terms of like wildfire smoke and hurricanes and all this stuff. And speaking to that in like a kind of dramatic fashion. And then also speaking to the fact that like the reason that it matters is not so that I can, you know, we can fix this and then go like send this route on K2 that I want to do. Um, although I would love to do that. Um, the thing that like really matters is in fact, like my buddy Rasul who lives down in the Valley, he's a village elder in this town of Huche and which is down below K2. And, um, and like, you know, he's somebody who like doesn't have a carbon footprint. He doesn't have, um, a vote. He doesn't have climate action that he can take in his life. Like when he thinks about climate, he's thinking about like building those like rock baskets, like gabions that like allow you to control where water goes so that his village doesn't like wash away when, the uh you know when when uh glacial flooding shows up in their valley which is like a huge problem in that part of the world now and uh and it's like he's the reason that we need to go you know fix this stuff the folks that are stuck outside in bend oregon where i live who you know don't have clean air to breathe when the smoke shows up um are the folks we need to do this work for like the 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 kids who are going to eventually hand this future off to at some point like they're going to need to do this work for and and um and it's like 
that trip to K2 without all of this other stuff in my life would have just been like, wow, shit, we didn't get to the top. But instead it's like, wow, okay, that was like another crazy mountain experience. And no, we didn't get to the top, but here's this like this wild thing that we can utilize to communicate on this change that we need in the world. And, um, and it's like, that's really demonstrative of like the purpose that advocacy work brings to my climbing. It creates a whole different set of values outside of like got to the top or not, um, that are something that have been really useful for me, not only in terms of just being able to like do the work, but also like in terms of like how I value my experiences and how I make decisions in terms of like keeping myself safe and things like that as well. So I, I think that it's a like, yeah, super, super long winded answer to your question. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, I but it. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can make sense of an instance like that where ultimately I know for a lot of people you'd walk away and be like, Oh, that was a failure. Like we didn't make it to the summit and that's hard. That's a hard thing to digest. And especially when you've dedicated two months on the ground there, two and a half months, but the prior six, seven, a year to train for that. But yeah, I mean, you can kind of wrap it up and like this, exactly what you just said, that's a huge talking point and something that you learned and a story that you're able to share and, and kind of help people understand and grasp what we are up against. Yeah. And I think we all have the stories, right? I mean, K2 is like pretty dramatic, but like, like anybody who spends that time outside has has stories about how their their world is being impacted by climate and that's just like it's such a powerful tool and it's like for anybody who's thinking about how they can change the world around them or wants to do so start there start with your stories that's like it's so it's so potent and it is such a like age-old way to share information and uh and and i really i think it's something that works so um yeah that's that's that that's that's Anybody who's like looking for that first step, that's, I think that's it. Yeah, I love that. I think storytelling is such a beautiful way of communicating. And I think we ought to do it more in person, but podcasts are a great way too. Um, and books are an incredible way. Like every chapter that I've opened up and dove into is a totally new story about a beautiful adventure in the mountains. And as you mentioned, you kind of drop these tidbits of knowledge in there, like the hundred year plan, which I really resonate with and I hope that uh, I hope that everyone can resonate with that's like I think you said a line in there about the hundred year plan and I don't remember the individual that told you that but he basically was like imagine how much time you'd have doing these adventures if you live to a hundred and I was like yes that is exactly the point of all of this so um, yeah (laughs) <laughs> I dove no. in and was so excited <laughs> to chat with you because of your book, but I got so much more out of it. So thank you so incredibly much. And if you hey, want thank, to elaborate. Thank you. thank you for letting me go on and on. It's so yes. fun to be on your show. I'm so dang honored. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, gosh, I mean, I really, I really feel like, uh, like you and I have never been on, on a mission together, which we should probably fix, but, um, yes. I do feel like we've very much been on this journey together and being able to get on here and tell some stories with you has been has been really lovely. Yeah, I love it. And I don't I I do like I did kind of that was the last thing that was on my list is that hundred year plan. I think it's a super powerful point that uh, we should all try to live and abide by. And that just means we're going to live to it. We're going to become what is it a centurion? 
Um, Tyrion. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's. I mean, that's. I'll, I'll quickly say that that is like the goal of that whole thing is like lifting your gaze, not looking at just like each individual mission as like you know win or lose. Like got to the top, didn't like looking at your climbing or your skiing or whatever it is that you do. Like as like a like a lifetime practice where you go to these places and you give yourself opportunities to try these hard things while also recognizing like sometimes it's not the right time like oftentimes it's not the right time and it's okay to just say no it's okay to say like this doesn't this doesn't fit into the hundred year plan like conditions aren't right the snowpack's not right the weather's not right whatever um and uh and like build a life that allows for you to like cycle back to those places so that you can have that moment where you show up and things are just right and you get yeah. to go do that thing that you're like truly proud of. I love that. I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Graham. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And for the listeners, A Fine Line, it's a wonderful book. I'm like halfway through it and totally enthralled. I've been reading it like a maniac, just like sitting next to my dad while he takes a nap on the couch and, and combing through it. And the images too that you've included are beautiful. Like it's just very well done. And I'm proud of you. That takes a lot to write a book. But where can people get it? Oh, uh, where should you get it? You should go buy it at an independent bookstore. Um, it's published by Mountain Earth Books. Go to your local independent bookstore and and ask them to order it in. And if you can't, if you don't have a local independent bookstore, um, and actually, if you go to my website, there's a link to our local bookstore here in Bend where you can pick it up. And they'll send it to you. Awesome. And if you're in Tahoe, I know Alpenglow Sports is carrying it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they actually... Um, I, I awesome, I, I Graham. Well, in there. <laughs> ooh, hot tip. Dang, I might have to go get another one. <laughs> I love I it. I know somebody who sign it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to send you the book. You can sign it and send it back. <laughs> um, I love it so much. Thank you. I appreciate you.